That's the Gaelic for welcome, I think. And welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 5, The Old Town. Central Edinburgh is very much a town of two halves. The Old Town, which was there first, of course, and the New Town, growing up really from the 1700s. They have very different histories, they're very different places, and so I thought an episode on each one would be a good thing. So for today, I'm going to have a little look at some of the history of the old town, focusing particularly on two museums which you can visit today to find out all about it, they being the real Mary King's Close and Gladstone's Land. And then I'm going to finish the episode with the wonderful story of Deacon Brodie, that fine upstanding citizen by day, and burglar and housebreaker by night, who was the talk of Edinburgh at the end of the 18th century when he was living and duping everybody, and who in fact has been the talk of the town ever since. A colourful story, and one that deserves retelling in a little bit of detail. Okay, so first then, the old town, which of course started as houses being built down the steep slope from the castle, and which owes its shape to the fact that it was quite difficult to spread out further. Both sides of what we call the Royal Mile are steeply sloped down, difficult to build on. What to do? Well, build upwards. Add layer upon layer to the houses that you have managed to build, and head skywards to create the space you need for more flats, more places to rent out, more places into which you can cram lots of people in a small space. So, by the 18th century, what you had was one of the world's most densely populated cities, but somewhere where all classes were sharing the space. So the wealthy probably lived on the first floor of these buildings, away from the noise and the mud of the road, and not too many stairs to climb. Above them, a layer or two of professional classes or merchants, people with a bit of money. The working class piled in high above them, and the very poorest crammed into the attics and cellars in which nobody else really wanted to live. Eventually, wealthier folk decided they didn't want to be jammed in with all these other people, and gradually they began to move over to what became Newtown, that elegant other half of the city with the long straight roads and the elegant squares, peopled by the Georgians, home of the Enlightenment thinkers, etc. But that is next week's story, so back to the old town. By, say, the beginning of the 18th century, you have the high, sometimes dangerous buildings, quite run down, getting more run down as the wealthy move out, tightly packed buildings with little spaces in between them, known as closes, which were effectively steep, dark little alleyways in which, yes, often dark deeds were done. Building was quite often ad hoc, so there's a whole maze of interlinked little passageways, extra buildings jammed in here and there all becoming less and less pleasant, quite insanitary in fact. There was no water in the houses, you had to collect that from a tap on the high street. One of those taps is still there today actually, just outside the John Knox house. And as for getting rid of your waste, not many options other than chucking it into the streets. This being how the poet Ferguson came up with the term Old Reeky for the city of Edinburgh, because yes, it was old and it did reek. I found a couple of quite colourful descriptions one written by Daniel Defoe. He wrote a book called A Tour Through the Whole Island of Great Britain, and on his trip to Edinburgh, which in many ways he did like, he was quite vocal on the subject of its overcrowding, and also about the filthy conditions in which the people lived. So here he is, for example, on the overcrowding. 
quote, Though many cities have more people in them, yet I believe this may be said with truth, that in no city in the world so many people live in so little room as at Edinburgh. He wrote too at some length about the practice of throwing your waste out of the windows. It would be swept away once a day, he said, but that didn't really do the job. So there was the filth and the smell, and there was also the very real danger that as you were passing, someone a few floors up, who perhaps didn't know you were there, would throw goodness knows what from a bucket down onto your head. Let me quote Daniel Defoe on this very topic. In the morning, earlier than seven o'clock, before the human excrements are swept away from the doors, it stinks intolerably, for after ten at night you run a great risk if you walk the streets of having chamber pots of ordure thrown upon your head, and it sounds very oddly in the ears of a stranger to hear all the passers-by cry out as loud as to be heard to the uppermost stories of the house, which are generally six or seven high in the front of the high street, hold your hoard, that is, hold your hand and throw not till I am past. Writing fifty years later, in the 1770s, James Boswell explains that things weren't really much better. The magistrate, he explained, had taken care to enforce laws against throwing foul water from the windows, but the smell continued, because there were so many families on all those different floors that really it was difficult to stop. It was so bad that he said he felt ashamed when showing his London friend Samuel Johnson around his home city. Yes, he was proud of Edinburgh, and indeed all of Scotland, but he did wonder what Mr Johnson would make of this. As he put it, quote, A zealous Scotsman would have wished Mr Johnson to be without one of his five senses upon this occasion. Dorothy Wordsworth visited in 1803, and she wrote about the amazing way the buildings were piled up high one on top of the other. As she put it, the old town, with its irregular houses, stage above stage, hardly resembles the work of men. It is more like a piling up of rocks. So you get the picture, and it's no surprise then that disaster struck. In fact, in the 19th century, disaster struck twice. The first time in 1824, the Great Fire of Edinburgh destroyed much of the city, although not all of the old town. That's why there are some very old buildings still left, but they are interspersed with newer ones. And then, in 1861, the collapse of an entire building, numbers 99 to 107 High Street, in fact. In the middle of the night, half past one in the morning, in fact, it caved in, all the floors collapsed, one on top of the other. It was said that there was very little masonry on the pavement, but of course the effect on those inside was devastating. Five stories of flats and attics came tumbling down, and it's believed that 83 different families were living there. At least 20 died, and there was a rescue operation, at which it was found that a vast number of the victims were still in bed. So quickly had it all come about. There were lots of tales of lucky escapes, some of them written up in a book called Edinburgh Curiosities by James U. Thompson. He describes, for example, how Police Sergeant Rennie was patrolling that very side of the street, but just seconds before the collapse, he crossed over to the other side to investigate a disturbance. And here is James Thompson on the subject of the Baxter family, eleven of them who all were fortunate enough to escape with their lives. Quote, they had all retired for the night except the father, William. He had just placed his trousers on the back of a chair 
when he heard a noise like the rumble of chucky stones. His wife, a superstitious woman, remarked excitedly, that is a warning. So the family were quickly roused by the parents and they all escaped by the back passage. One colourful story of escape is still told today. I bet you'll hear it if you take a guided tour along the Royal Mile. One reason why it's still known today is that it was written up a week or so after the accident in The Weekly Scotsman. Here's what it said. At an early hour, while the work of clearing away the rubbish was proceeding, one of the detachments of firemen discovered a foot protruding from the debris. The men set vigorously to work around the spot and soon ascertained that a boy was buried there. But the unfortunate lad was so closely wedged between the rubbish and the joisting that he could not be got out until the beam was cut in two. During the process of sawing through the beam, the boy was heard repeatedly to say, Heave awa, man, I'm no dead yet. And on his ultimately being extracted, happily not much injured, he immediately called for a drink of water. Considering his extremely critical position, the patience and firmness of this lad was truly wonderful. So that was young Joseph MacIver, believed to be about eight or ten, I think. This had repercussions. A couple of years later, a report was commissioned, a report on the sanitary conditions of the city of Edinburgh, and it found what I'm sure the people living there already knew. Writing, for example, about an area called Crombie's Land, where some 70 people were living, Dr Henry Littlejohn said it was one of the most overcrowded tenements he'd ever seen, and that he suspected it had been, quote, built specially for the poor, with an eye to a large rental, with small, ill-ventilated rooms, and a great deficiency in sanitary conditions. One of the medical inspectors on the team wrote that the place was, quote, a hotbed of disease, a great and continual nuisance to the locality, both morally and physically. Two years later, in 1867, came the Edinburgh City Improvement Act, which did lead to the demolition of quite a number of slums and a good number of improvements. So, to dig a little deeper into the history of all of this, let's go to the Real Mary King's Close, which is a museum. Actually, it's more than that. It's a research and archaeological project, really, the results of which are on display in the museum. So, it began in 2001. They took one close, Mary King's Close, and began their research, the goal being to find out as much as possible about the many-layered history of this building and dig up the stories of the people who lived there. If you go to visit, you're taken through by a guide, you stop in various rooms and have the stories explained to you. So yes, it's very much the history of that close, but by extension it gives you a picture of all of Edinburgh's closes. Things you will learn there. Well, the names of the closes, for example. The fact that a lot of them are named after the activities which took place there. Bakehouse Close, perhaps, or Flesh Market Close and others were named after prominent residents, Stuart's Close, or Pearson's Close, or, in this case, Mary King's Close. You will learn much about the atmosphere of the wines and closes, the fact that many of them had gates at the end to lock at night and keep out thieves and vagabonds, and the fact that way back in the 16th century, in 1554, in fact, a regulation was introduced to say that lanterns must burn all winter long from 5 to 9pm, for, quote, the eschewing of evil doings. You will learn about Mary King herself, a widow with four children, who ran a fabric shop here and offered sewing. 
She was obviously doing quite well because when she died in 1644, the list of her possessions included two gold rings, six silver spoons, fire irons and chamber pots, and also a whole lot of things connected to her business. Ten spools of thread, sheets, cushions, pillows, table napkins, and, very 17th century, six ruffs. You learn about the other residents who lived in the house at the same time as Mary. There were rich merchants, there was a lawyer, a doctor, there were tradesmen too, a tanner and a shoemaker, who all conducted their business on the premises and probably lived there too. The poor represented as well. There's the widow Ross, for example. And in one of the little rooms, you will see a model of the red-haired Mary Queen of Scots, because it was in this building, in that room in fact, that she spent her last night in Edinburgh before she fled. The City Chambers building is just above Mary King's Close, and the Lord Provost who lived there invited her to spend one last night here, under guard of course. It's believed she ate supper and slept, although how much she slept we're not sure, because we do know that there was an angry mob outside, shrieking out things like, burn her, she is not fit to live. And the next day, things got even worse. She was taken away to Loch Leven, where she was imprisoned. The start of, I think it was 19 years of imprisonment, which finally ended in her execution. Stories will be told too from 1644, which was the year the plague arrived. Probably via rats on the ships arriving at Leith, the cause of the devastation which Edinburgh suffered for at least two years. An official plague doctor was appointed, himself a frightening-looking individual, covered head to foot in dark clothes as an effort to protect himself, and wearing a long pointed mask, filled with spices and rose petals, to ward off the spells. It said that he hoped his scary appearance would ward off evil spirits too. As for the people of Edinburgh, the wealthy ones fled, but many had no choice other than to stay, and if they became infected, they were quarantined at home, bread and ale being delivered to their doors and everybody keeping their distance. Shops and businesses closed down, neither the court nor parliament sat. Weddings and funerals were banned, the reason given being, quote, because of this time of common calamity and public pestilence. At least a quarter, possibly even up to half of the population died and after somebody had died, a cleaning squad would be sent into the house, dressed in grey tunics, marked with a white cross, the cross of St Andrew, and their task would be to burn the goods, the bedding, the clothing, everything they could find in order to limit infection. So then, a visit to the real Mary King's Close will give you lots of information about Edinburgh Old Town, and the research is ongoing. There are lots more things they're very much hoping to discover. The other museum that you can visit, also on the Royal Mile, is called Gladstone's Land, one of Edinburgh's old tenement buildings, owned today by the National Trust for Scotland, and offering you, quoted from the guidebook, 500 years of old town history. It's called Gladstone's Land because it was bought in the early 17th century, 1617 I think, by one Thomas Gladstone, who lived on the upper floor with his wife and five children. He was an importer and a trader, and he had a range of tenants. And what there is today, if you visit, is three different floors, each one set up to represent one of the previous inhabitants of the building and to show you the details of their lives as they would have been at that period. The earliest of the three is from the 17th century heyday of Old Edinburgh and revolves around the lives of two wealthy merchants, 
John Riddick and Margaret Noble. They were married. Women kept their own names in those days in Scotland. They ran quite a business. They were traders in foodstuffs and cloth and all sorts of imported items. They had a ground floor shop. They had a tavern which they ran in the cellar and they lived in the building too, on the third floor, with their five children. They owned a ship as well, which was sent off in search of goods to buy and bring back to trade, but they also did business through companies like the British East India Company. And a list of some of the things they had for sale is really quite surprising when you bear in mind that we're talking about the 1620s or 1630s. And in their shop you could buy ginger from the East Indies, raisins from Greece, sugar from the West Indies, pepper and rice from India, cloves from China, almonds from the Middle East and tobacco from South America. They did very well. When they died, they left the princely sum of £4,849, which I'm told is the equivalent of about £600,000 today. You get a sense, of course, of where they lived, of the one quite large room where they all lived, slept and socialised. So although they were well off, you still got to imagine seven people living in that quite small space. And then beside that, there's a little kitchen and a stockroom. On a different floor has been recreated the dwelling of Elizabeth Pillins and William Dawson, also married. She was a merchant. He was a schoolteacher originally, but they came here to run a draper's shop together, where they sold cloth and items of clothing, stockings and hats and they too took commissions and made clothes for other people. We know that they were successful too. They owned the ground floor. They had other apartments upstairs. They had a female servant. They didn't have any children. And just from knowing that what one wealthy customer, one Hugh McLean, bought when he came into Edinburgh one day from King Aloch, gives you a flavour of what was going on here at that time. He paid for, quote, silks, satins, lace, ribbons, stockings and mittens, and for the making of a cardinal. So a cardinal was a cloak, a red hooded cloak, and he also had a pair of stays made. So that's a kind of corset, presumably for his wife or one of his daughters. And when you look round this room, you can see, for example, a many-drawered cabinet. You can pull out all the drawers and look at some of the accoutrements that they would have used. There's a little tea table set up, because... In the latter half of the 18th century, firstly, shopping was becoming a social activity. Tea and coffee had arrived in Britain and was proving very popular. So it's thought that they tried to make their shop somewhere quite social, where you could come, sip tea with your friends, think about what you might want to buy, and that the fashionable, the quite well-to-do, would have gathered here for that sort of activity. And then the third floor has been recreated to show life at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's Mary Wilson's Boarding House, which she opened in 1911, putting an advert in the Scotsman to announce that she had, quote, a room to suit two to three respectable men. Code for people with steady jobs who were going to be able to pay the rent, perhaps carpenters or the like. So you can see the room where three adult men lived and ate and slept. There's a little table with kitchen equipment. It's thought that their meals were probably provided and that maybe they also had their laundry done. That probably would have cost extra. And Mary ran the boarding house until 1929, when she died, aged 69. So by the sound of it, no retirement for her. And just a few years later, in 1933, when there was a new owner in place, the building was condemned as being, quote, 
unfit for human habitation and not capable of being made fit. The boarders were told they had to leave, and the owner, Eleanor Leake was her name, had her livelihood ruined. She refused to leave then. She wanted compensation. Sounds reasonable. She was taken to court for refusing to leave. There's no record that she was actually paid any compensation, and what happened to her after that isn't really known, except for the fact that she died in 1945, so fully 12 years later, and at that stage was living at another address. So, visiting Gladstone's land gives you a snapshot of those who've lived in the old town over the last four to five hundred years. If you read the guidebook, there are write-ups too of lots of other people from the house. So, just to run through chronologically a few of them, there's William Struthers, a minister at St Giles in the 1620s. In the 1720s, there was George Langlands, a surgeon and apothecary who ran his surgery here and lived here. Then in the 1750s, Alexander Noble, a candle maker, who made his candles here and had a shop on the ground floor. This is the period when Newtown is opening up, so gradually things are going to go downhill in terms of the wealth of the people still living in the old town. In the 1820s, there's a record of one Duncan MacDonald, a retired lieutenant who'd fought in the Napoleonic Wars and then come to live out his last days here. And then in the 1860s and 70s, William and Jane Ross ran a dram shop. And there are descriptions from this time to show that standards were really beginning to drop. Here, for example, from 1858, is an extract of an article which appeared in the Christian News, describing all the ways in which the area had gone seriously downhill. Quote, We cannot positively assert that prostitution is increasing in the city, but the external evidences of it are becoming increasingly more obtrusive. In the High Street, the Cannon Gate, and especially the section of the Lawn Market situated between the head of Bank Street and the foot of Castle Hill, the increased number and the disgusting drunkenness and obscenity of these unfortunates are a scandal to the city. It is nothing uncommon to see girls of tender age hugging each other into dram shops, so drunk already that, were it not but for the wall to lean against, they could not stagger to the door of the drunkery. Clearly a terrible situation for those girls, but I have to say I do like the word drunkery for somewhere to buy drink. I don't really know how that's managed to die out. And then from the 20th century, mention of other residents, Thomas and Mary Bennett, for example, who were bootmakers and did shoe repairs and supplemented their income by taking in lodgers. They too had for offer, quote, a comfortable furnished room for a respectable married couple. After them came their daughter Jessie and her husband George Mowat, who married in December 1899 in Canongate Church and had seven children, living there for well over a decade until the terrible day in 1916 when George was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, aged 36. By the 1930s, the building was under threat of demolition, but in 1934 it was bought by the National Trust for Scotland, who began a restoration programme, which continued throughout the 20th century, right up in fact until the latest improvements were made in 2020. So Gladstone's Land is also a place you can go if you want to delve into the history of the area, find out more about the ordinary people who've lived there over the centuries. And let's finish the episode with the colourful tale of one of the area's most famous, infamous, notorious residents, Deacon Brodie. 
Throughout the 1770s and 80s, he was a respectable businessman, a town councillor, and what people didn't know, he was also by night a housebreaker and a thief. People did know that there were lots of crimes being committed. Bit of a mystery, really. Nobody had any idea how it was happening. Brody certainly wasn't suspected, being far too upstanding and proper. But there was an incident where he was nearly caught and where suspicion began to fall on him. It's described in a book by James Patterson called Kay's Edinburgh Portraits. And here's what he writes. About the latter end of 1787, a series of robberies were committed in and around Edinburgh, and no clue could be had of the perpetrators. Shops were opened, and goods disappeared as if by magic. The whole city became alarmed. An old lady mentions that a female friend of hers, who, from indisposition, was unable to go one Sunday to church, was, during divine worship and in the absence of the servant, surprised by the entrance of a man with a crepe over his face into the room where she was sitting. He very coolly took up the keys, which were lying on the table before her, opened her bureau, and took out a considerable sum of money that had been placed there. He meddled with nothing else, but immediately relocked the bureau, replaced the keys on the table, and making a low bow, retired. The lady was panic-struck the whole time. Upon the exit of her mysterious visitor, she exclaimed, Surely that was Deacon Brodie. But I'm afraid she thought this was so improbable that she didn't say anything. Crimes continued to be committed until eventually he was caught. He was caught robbing the General Excise Office of Scotland in Canongate. He'd been there on business before. It's said that he had stolen a key from a hook, made a putty impression of it, and then of course had a replacement key made, and used it to get back in one night, along with some accomplices. They were surprised, the accomplices were arrested, but Deacon Brodie managed to escape. He ran from Edinburgh all the way to the Channel, where he took a boat to Ostend, his plan being, eventually, to get to New York. Long story short, this was much written about in the newspapers, detailed descriptions of him, and eventually he was recognised and arrested in, of all places, Amsterdam. A sensational trial followed in Edinburgh, so many people came to watch that troops were needed to control the crowds, and his two accomplices turned King's evidence, which I think means confessed, swore that he had been involved, in return for their own freedom. So Deacon Brodie's house was searched, all sorts of things were found, keys, weapons, things to pick locks with. He was found guilty, taken to the notorious Tollbooth prison, and eventually hanged on October the 1st, 1788 when a report by an eyewitness tells us that he arrived at the scaffold in, quote, a full suit of black, his hair dressed and powdered, and that he had left a request that his body be handed to a named person, so that, quote, he and my friends may have it decently dressed and interred, something it's believed was done. And today, to make sure he's remembered in Edinburgh, there is the Deacon Brodie's Tavern on the Lawn Market. There are two pub signs outside, showing him in his two different guises, and a very informative plaque, which reads like this. William Brodie, Deacon of Wrights and Mason of Edinburgh, was the son of a cabinet maker in the lawn market. He was born in Brodie's Close and hanged near St Giles, both places being just a few steps from the tavern which now bears his name. In manhood, Brodie's baseness inspired Robert Louis Stevenson, 
to write that famous classic, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. By day, William Brodie was a pious, wealthy and much-respected citizen and in 1781 was elected deacon councillor of the city. But at night he was a gambler and a thief, dissipated and licentious. The annals record, quote, his cunning and audacity were unsurpassed. Brodie was hanged from the city's new gallows on October the 1st, 1788. Ironically, he had designed the gallows that were eventually to seal his fate. And, of course, the notice is flanked by two pictures of him, one an upstanding citizen in breeches and white stockings and a red velvet jacket, and the other wearing the dark clothing for his burglary exploits, eye patches, carrying a lantern, and even, yes, a swag bag. It certainly is one of the city's more colourful stories. OK, so that's it for this week then. A quick cook's tour of the old town, and of course, as night follows day next week, we must visit the new town, where the history and the stories are really very different. I hope very much that you will be able to join me for that, and in the meanwhile, I am just going to sign out in my attempt at Gaelic, which means thank you, thank you for listening, that is, and goodbye, which I believe goes something like this. Tarpa leave, Agus marchin leave. <laughs>